Thanks for joining us for Life Vineyard Church. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Liz. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Life, and I am enjoying the snowfall this morning. We just finished our Christmas decorating last night, and then waking up to the snowfall is like, Mm, like a kiss of Christmas coming and just solidifying the whole thing. Um, so are any of you like a re-gifter during Christmas season? You participate in that? Okay, so this is like re- a no shame, like you got something and you have no shame in just wrapping it up again and giving it again because maybe it just wasn't your thing or you have, a, you have too many of those, who knows? Um, I remember when I first, like, un, you know, realized that this was a thing, and I, w- like, gasped, like, oh, people re-gift things, you know? Because um, I thought, you know, as a kid, every gift had to be so personal and thoughtful, and you could never re-gift something. But now, you know, no judgment, no shame. I participate in re-gifting myself. Um, you know, even with our best efforts, we can all get gift giving, you know, we can miss the mark sometimes, right? (laughs) We think we're getting something that someone might really like or want, and it it just kind of doesn't live up to the expectation. One time, I was at an event, and you know how at events they'll give door prizes out and things like that? Well, those can be generic gifts, but I got a door prize that included a Starbucks gift card. Now that's a generic thing, but I thankfully love coffee. So I was excited that mine contained something that was personal to me. And you know, anybody can get me a a coffee gift card at any time and I will be greatly appreciative of that. Anyways, when I got home later that evening, I immediately took the the gift card and pulled up my phone, and I know, you know, it's possible I'm going to lose this gift card, so it has to go into my Starbucks app immediately if I'm going to, you know, keep this gift card with me, because then I just go to Starbucks, use my phone. You know, if you haven't done that, it's highly recommendable. Anyways, so, you know, I look on the back, scratch off the numbers or whatever, put it in, and I'm excited to see, like, okay, what's my total? Zero, zero, zero. Ah, okay, I got a number wrong. Let me like do it again. Like make double check. I've put in the right numbers and the access code. Enter zero, zero, zero. Ah, I've been duped, you know? Somehow I got a dud of a card. You know, we all have a story like that where a gift has gone wrong. It didn't meet your expectation, right? Well, today we're in this series um, on David, and David offers a gift to the Lord, but it wasn't what God wanted. And next week, we're entering this season of Advent. And I love Advent because it kind of creates for my family this natural rhythm of reading scripture and reading like the whole Bible. We have a Jesus storybook Bible. We've used other Advent things, um, but we kind of like take these passages and look through the whole story of scripture because Jesus's birth 
is this culminating point of God's plan of salvation throughout the Bible. And so God's been moving throughout the Old Testament and the prophets speaking about this redeeming relationship that he is establishing with us, his people. And so we're going to finish this series on David by connecting it to Jesus. And David is um, brought into this covenant with God where God promises that he is going to make David's throne a forever throne, that he is going to promise David is going to have a lineage of a throne and kings forever. And that points from 2 Samuel all the way to Jesus, where we enter Advent next week. And you know, we read these familiar passages in Advent, and we sometimes just gloss over the historical significance, you know, because it's not as forefront in our mind. But we often go to um, scriptures like the beginning of the Gospels. We, we open up the Gospels, Matthew 1.1, and we see this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Or we go over to Luke, and we open up the beginning of Luke, and we see there's this story where the angel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to have this miraculous pregnancy. And he tells her, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and we will be called, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. These are all promises that were given to David in 2 Samuel, where we've been kind of camping out. And then there's, there's Jesus when he begins his earthly ministry, he's identified as the son of David. And one of the first people to identify him as this is uh, a blind beggar who has been, you know, disabled most of his life, maybe all of his life, and he sees that Jesus is going to come near, and he thinks, this is my moment for life change. And he starts calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what he is identifying about Jesus is that he is the long-awaited king, that he is the fulfillment of this promise to the Israelites that God was going to establish David's throne forever that he's going to bring a forever king. And blind Bartimaeus is saying, that's him. I know that that's him. And he identifies something that even the Jewish leaders weren't ready to believe. So God promises to David that he's going to establish his throne forever. And we're going to read about that story 
um, in 2 Samuel 7 today. And right away, the beginning of this chapter, we see David has this great idea. The people of Israel, they've been oppressed for quite a while. They've been um, defeated by their surrounding enemies, by nations for years, centuries. And David, he becomes the second king after Saul, and he starts experiencing success. He has military success. He starts stabilizing Israel politically and economically. He even establishes the capital city. And so at this point of stabilization, he says, it's time. It's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to this capital city that I've secured. And he takes 30,000 men with him to bring back the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark is the most adorned thing in, in Jewish, in the people of Israel. It is a huge deal. It is the place of God's presence where he rests, and it is a place of um, the Old Testament scriptures, the law. There's the bread of manna from the wilderness. There's Aaron's rod where he performed miracles. This is the thing for the Israelites. People have died for not carrying it correctly. So he transports it to the new capital city, and David sets up a nice house for himself, right? He, he relishes in his success, and he builds himself a house with cedar paneling, okay? That's beautiful, and it's fragrant, and it's expensive. And he says, you know what? Now that I'm living at this level of success, and I have this beautiful house, and I've brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the capital city, I think it's time that the Ark doesn't just live in a tent anymore. The Ark needs to live in a temple, in a palace like me, right? And so in verse 1 through 2 of 2 Samuel 7, this is how it starts. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. So David has this great idea that I'm going to build God a house. And he tells Nathan the prophet about it. And this is like if someone were to come to church, let's say that was maybe just like a secret millionaire, and they grabbed me after service one day, and they said, you know what, Liz, we're, we have a lot of money, and we would like to give you a million dollars to just go and build a brand new church. I would say, do what is ever in your heart. Be blessed. Yes. Go and do that thing that God has put in your heart. And that's exactly what Nathan is telling David. But then Nathan goes home and God speaks to him. Nathan has a dream. And, and God tells him some very specific things that then Nathan tells David. And through this encounter, we learn about some incredible insights into the nature of God. So this was God's answer to David, continuing on in verse 4. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, 
this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? God says, hey, David, I didn't ask for a house. That wasn't on my wish list. It's a nice gesture, David. It's a wonderful idea. But here's the truth, the life-changing truth. I have always moved with my people. See, God is an incarnational God. We, we call him Emmanuel, especially during Advent, God with us. He is a God that has embodied himself among his people. Wherever they have wandered, he has wandered with them. What they have experienced, he experienced with them. God went wherever his people went, and he will continue to be with his people, you and I, forever. He is a with us God. You know, David was living like a king during this time, but the people were not. They, they were still poor. They still had needs. Their security was still new, newly established. And, and so God is saying, you know, I'm not ready to set myself up in a distant house, palace, temple. I am still going to be with my people during this time. Verses 8 through 16, we read on. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. And I'll provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares in this covenant that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one to build a house, a temple for my name. Right there, he's talking about David's son, Samuel, who is going to build him a temple. But then he continues to foreshadow to Jesus. He says, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from your sight. Verse 16, 
your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secured forever. There's kind of this dual meaning going on here where there is a, a, a soon fulfillment. David's descendant, his son, Samuel, is going to build Solomon is going to build him a temple. But you know what? Despite human faults or failures, he is going to continue a forever throne for David's line. And God is reminding David here that it is my extravagant grace that has worked through your life. You think that you're choosing me and you're building me a house, but I chose you. I took you from out in the, in the fields tending sheep, and I chose you to instead of lead sheep, lead people. I am the one who destroyed your enemies. I am the one who secured your land. It is God who is working, and he will build David a house, a dynasty. And this means that he is going to establish David's generational line to be a kingship line all the way to Jesus. That despite man's faults and failures, he will not back out of this unstoppable promise of God's rule and reign. So we read in Psalm 89 a similar echo of this praise where David is praising God for his his promise of his establishment in his throne and in his generation and in his kingdom. Psalm 89, 3 through 8 reflects this promise of God's rule on earth. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. They will sit on your throne from now until until eternity. All heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? The highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O God, O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You are entirely faithful. You know, you and I can can stand in awe of who God is and we can praise him because he establishes us as his people and he nourishes us as his children and he empowers us as his ministers. And he says, I am going to be with you forever and I am going to infuse your life with the grace to live and and serve me. You know, sometimes like David, we're going along in life and things are good Maybe we're even experiencing 
some success, and we think, you know, I got it. I got some stuff going on. God, how can I serve you better? What, what can I do for you? And God says, oh, you don't have to do anything for me. You know, we think that it's us working for God, but really, God is saying, I give you the grace to do everything through me. That he is the one that actually incarnated himself and came to us. He's the one that chose us. He's the one that saves us and frees us, who gives us a new purpose. It's always him coming to us. He gives us the grace to live and serve and have our being and experience his abundant presence. You know, the beginning of this 2 Samuel 7 chapter, it all starts by God calling David his servant. He calls him his servant. And you know, all other kings in those um, times and other nations, the kings, earthly kings, were considered like a deity status. And they would um, demand worship and honor from their citizens. And a lot of times they were partnered with a God that was kind of like their sponsor, right? They had to do things at the temple to earn the God's favor, to earn the God's blessing. And God's saying, I'm a God that does not work like that. I am a God unlike all other gods. That my earthly kings are humble servants, that they serve under my authority. And God is the only one deserving of worship. But God also gives this um, abundant grace and favor, not based on what you're doing to, to please and earn it, but because he is the one that has just given it out of his um, own character and who he is. Jesus, as we go from David to Jesus, Jesus comes as the suffering servant, the humble king. He comes with, uh, I will lay down my life and obey my father to the very end. Posture of his heart. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom. And then Matthew, he quotes from Isaiah, this prophecy concerning Jesus. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So we see our role is servant and God's role is gracious fulfillment. God is the one always working to fulfill his good plans in and through our lives. The promise of Jesus is that Jesus would take the forever throne and he would establish God's rule and reign in this world 
through his life, death, and resurrection. And this forever kingdom would come, the future age would come to the present and start now, this forever kingdom that we can enter into, you and I can enter into, where sin and brokenness has been, um, the power of sin and brokenness has been broken. We can enter into his presence with peace and well-being, with joy as our inheritance. You know, Eugene Peterson, he was a pastor and then later an author, and he made this comment on this text. He says that David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David was riding this wave of great acclaim, right, where he was defeating the opposition. He was uniting God's people. And he began to think, I could do God a favor. But if David continued along those lines, he would be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. And Eugene, he goes on to say, if, if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own actions and our own performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is ruined. God's kingdom is all about Jesus coming as this forever king for the whole world. That Jesus comes and embodies himself as one of us. He's an incarnational God who suffers and dies and raises back to life victoriously. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father until it's time for him to come again. And this good king, Jesus, he's working out his kingdom through you and I. He's establishing his peace, his justice, and his hope through you and I. He calls you and I from, from wherever we are, wandering in our own little field, doing our own little thing. And he calls us and says, I've given you a new hope and a new purpose, and I've put my spirit in you. And I'm gonna live in you through the Holy Spirit and extend my kingdom. And you are gonna give your life on behalf of others. You're gonna serve others and love others by obediently looking to the Father like Jesus. And you and I give praise and thanks to Jesus saying, this is all yours. It is your Grace, everything that I do is your grace. It's yours. We, we, when we start to think we rule our own little worlds, God calls us up higher. And he says, I have a much bigger view for you to look through. Martin Luther had a friend named Philip and Philip was a terrible worrier and Martin Luther used to come over to his shoulder and give him this little theological uh, encouragement and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Stop trying to rule the world, Philip. 
and you'll stop worrying. You can't worry and let God be the king. They just don't go together. As Christmas starts to take over our lives, our schedule, our agendas, our every free moment, if it already hasn't, I mean, we already had Black Friday. I bought most of my Christmas gifts online already. As all the things just start to fill every little space in our life, I charge you to not lose your grip on God's incarnational presence, his embodied presence with us, and his grace, that those two things your heart would stay tender towards as we move into Advent season. Because I promise you, in just one fell swoop, it will be like materialism, consumerism, activities, our own pleasure, our own efforts, everything that needs to be controlled and perfect will just take over and we'll lose our focus. It happens so quickly. There's so many good things to celebrate this season. So in all of your eating and your being with people, your gift opening, your re-gifting, <laughs> I really charge you to take a focus on God's presence with you and his grace in you. And so I have our call to action um, takeaway for you. And it's really an exercise, a go-to exercise during this season to remind yourself of those two things, his presence with you and his grace through you. And it's a breath prayer. Maybe you've done this before. It's just a spiritual exercise, something you can do literally anywhere at any time because it's about breathing, breathing in and breathing out. And it's a way of just praying with your breath. After his resurrection, Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. With his breath, he gave the Holy Spirit. And so you can, you can adapt this prayer however you like, but one way to start is by just using this scripture about receiving the Holy Spirit, that you ground in the Holy Spirit. So you just breathe in, and in your mind, pray, come Holy Spirit. And as you breathe out, you let go. Distraction. It just is like one word or a phrase, whatever comes in, you breathe in, come Holy Spirit, breathe out my grip on all the things I want to control. Breathe in, come Holy Spirit, breathe out anxiety, whatever it is. And then you can even change the, let, the, the breathing out part. You can breathe in, come Holy Spirit, I receive your joy. You don't have to let go of something negative. You can also embrace something that the Spirit brings. But you can practice this anywhere at any time. And I would encourage you to just keep practicing it through 
this season through this Christmas season. You can even like do something that catches your eye. Like anytime I see like a, a Christmas light that catches my eye, I'm gonna remind myself to do breath prayer, like to center myself on the incarnational God that is with me and his grace living in me. Those are the two things um, that I see for us moving in this season with our souls centered on his forever throne. Because, you know, the kingdom of God is something that we actually embody in our bodies, right? And as we go around throughout our lives, we bring his kingdom with our whole selves. And this is an exercise that just centers us so that we bring his kingdom where we are instead of our, our scattered, disfocused selves. That we center and stay in his kingdom. So would you guys stand as we go to worship? I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus, just for your establishing your rule and reign on this earth. So many generations ago, you have been so faithful on your promises, and we love you, and we enter into being your people and living with your presence forever. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. At Life Vineyard Church, we want you to experience the life-changing presence of God. We'd love to have you join our community. We meet every Sunday in Muhammad, Illinois. To find out more, go to lifevineyard.org, lifevineyard.org.